Hi, I'm your host, James Barrow, a creative turned marketing director with over 20 years' experience in the advertising industry. Join me as I go behind the scenes with a range of innovative thinkers. Hear what inspires them, their processes, and the methods to their madness. Find insights that can help unlock your creative potential and apply them in your life, career, and business. Right here on The B-Side with James Barrow. How can strategic design help solve today's business challenges? In Episode 7 of The B-Side, In the House Sessions, I speak to Marky Kabaz, Director of Strategic Design at Isobar in Sydney. Marky has nearly two decades of experience as a strategy and business design lead, building both brands and businesses for some of Australia's largest organisations. He's worked across all sectors, from financial services to FMCG, CPG, retail, mining, pharma, automotive, energy and government. Marky discusses how he effectively identifies the underlying cause of any organisational challenge and applies human psychology and creative principles to generate lasting and effective solutions that can be operationalized throughout the entire business. He's insatiably curious and a bit of a tech geek with a satirical sense of humor. He also loves rock climbing and a good single malt whiskey. I mean, who doesn't, right? And with a degree in behavioral psychology, he knows a thing or two about people as well. It was an absolute pleasure talking to Marky. He's a dear friend and a deep thinker. I hope you enjoy the episode as much as I did in making it. Cheers. We're with Marky Kabaz. This is the B-side with James Barrow in the house series. I'm so happy to have this man in the house or in his house. Um, Marky, how are you? How are you coping? How's this coronavirus nonsense treating you now? Um, James, firstly, thanks for, thanks for having me uh, on the podcast. Look, it's, it's been challenging. I don't think anyone is having a really easy time of it at the moment. We're all facing a number of challenges, but I think given the context, given uh, what we've been through over Christmas with the bushfires, before that with the drought, a little bit of breathing space and here comes the virus. Spirits are high in my household. Uh, my colleagues at work um, have been exemplary in the way that they've pivoted and we can probably unpick that a little bit more as we go. But I think, look, my, like most Australians, we're doing the best we can to to deal with the ever-evolving situation uh, and taking it day by day. Yeah, it's been really, really interesting to see how businesses are pivoting. Obviously, some, some are coping better than others and some are moving far quicker, expediting some of the things they maybe should have done some time ago. Um, you, you speak of work there, and, and I know we'll come back to, and I guess anything we talk about will be framed with the unavoidable topic of coronavirus but why don't we try and maintain some normality and and, and i'd really like to start with um, you know where you're from get to know your backstory and uh, how did you get into your field i started like most people doing an arts degree straight out of high school um, which was my way of deciding what i wanted to do i didn't have a clear direction uh, at that point um, and i fell into behavioral psychology that was the the area that most interested me in my university days. And I think, James, the, the learning for me from that was it was eminently interesting, but I couldn't ever picture myself solving people's problems for a living. Um, the irony, of course, being that's exactly what I do uh, every day in my professional career now. But um, while I was at university, I, I was lucky enough to meet a gentleman by the name of Didier Elzinger. Uh, Didier at the time was the CEO of Rising Sun, who, were, uh, who still are a very, very successful post-production facility. Um, he's since moved on. He's now the CEO of Culture Amp, um, based out of Melbourne. I encourage everyone, if you're not familiar with them, to look them up. He, he took pity on this university student who had a degree in behavioural psychology and not much else and gave me a job in visual effects. Um, I've learnt extremely quickly how to use what was at the time extremely complex software to create um, moving images and I, I fell in love with with that creative process from there it was a, a quick uh, step into um, graphic design and art direction I joined the advertising industry as an art director many many years ago worked my way up um, changing halfway through to become a copywriter I think for me the the thing that attracted me to creativity was 
being able to define and solve really complex challenges in very, very different ways. Um, there was really no methodology. It was a team of an art director and a copywriter in a room, a bunch of words on a page, which was a brief. Um, and then how do you solve that issue? I think working with some of the larger businesses, um, I was lucky enough to be exposed to some bigger problems, I guess some more systemic problems that began before marketing um, that were perhaps organisational challenges. I found that very, very attractive. Um, and so once I left advertising, I took another bit of a pivot. I followed my interest um, and set up a service design agency for a French consulting company. Friend, you um, noticed you'd moved. Uh, did you move over to um, France? You were based in Paris, weren't you, for a while? I was, I was based both here and in Paris. So I was mm. um, in charge of redefining the um, global strategy, um, creative strategy for the organisation. It had gone from two offices in France, one in Paris and a production facility in Montpellier, um, to 15 offices worldwide mm. in the space of about three months. Um, and not a lot of work had been done in that acquisition period with regards to well, what is our strategic differentiation, how do we present ourselves in uh, more mature, less mature markets, um, Australia mm. being one of those uh, more mature markets where we were up against the likes of Fjord, you know, Deloitte Digital, Accenture, um, Sapient, some of the more established shops. Um, so I took that on. That that was um, that was a fantastic challenge, um, and it really, really ex gave me the chance to be exposed to some global organisations and understand a little bit more mm. about the challenges mm. they face, the way that they're they're structured um, to overcome those challenges. That, that's really quite interesting. How different was it over there, like in terms of a ways of working and a general creative culture? How how did it differ? I mean, France, Paris especially, mm. is known as being, you know, the creative, I guess, mecca for a lot of industries. How did, did you feel that whilst you were over there? Did, and how did it differ? Well, I've got to say, James, I, I my first trip over there, I went in feeling that, yeah, I'm, I'm going to walk into the innovative hub, the centre of... Um, service design and, and really kind of get into the thick of it. I think the reality for me, which was somewhat disappointing, um, was that it was very, very methodical. The mm. way that organisations there engage tends to be... Surprising. Yeah. yeah it, uh, look, the, the creative teams within the organisation were, were frustrated. They felt as though they were very much production. The, the creativity wasn't democratised throughout the organisation. So... That was a learning, and that was something that we worked very, very hard to address. Teams in the US um, had greater design maturity in the service design space. The Paris office obviously was the centre of gravity, and shifting very, very ingrained practices is something that I'm sure you can appreciate <laughs> was quite difficult to do. The business eventually saw the value in doing it and invested quite heavily uh, in people. Um, it's since been merged with another acquisition that that consulting group has made. So I'm, um, you know, I've been following the progress there. They've evolved um, quite a lot as an organisation since then. Um, so I guess the, the early thinking we put in place was was owned by the business long after, you know, I'd had my input, and they've they've really expanded mm. on that, which is very very satisfying. Mm. Just uh, backtracking a little bit about uh, your personal background, um, where are you from? I mean, Mark E. Kabaz, you sound like a, <laughs> you, you either sound like a rap group, you know, from from the nineties or the eighties. Yeah. Tribe called Quest, Mark E. Kabaz, Wu Tang Clan, you know. Oh, or, uh, <laughs> you're talking my language now, Dave. I wish. <laughs> hey, well, you got the coolest name in the world, man. Yeah, and and I've got about one percent of the street cred that comes along with it, um, <laughs> <laughs> mate. My my background is Lebanese and, and Brazilian. Um, my my mother uh, was born in Lebanon. My father was born here. Uh, I was born and raised in little old Adelaide, um, which was you know by all accounts an idyllic upbringing. Um, mm. I had a very very comfortable life. We weren't rich, but I, I never um, I never felt lack or hardship. Mate, I've got absolutely nothing to complain about. Um, in my life, I, I count myself as extremely lucky. I think the name has certainly, you know, made people think twice when they when they 
pronounce it when they can articulate it. I've had every different spelling under the sun, every different pronunciation under the sun. Is that why you go by Q? <laughs> that's <laughs> that's to, why it's been reduced to Q. Yeah. I think it's pretty pretty difficult to... to uh, <laughs> Gotta love Aussies. You know, we can't get your name down to either it's two syllables nomenclature. or one. That's I right. Wonder, like, my name's James, but for some reason they've made it more difficult than Jamo. It's like, nah, James, James is fine. Just <laughs> Q. I think the, addition, the, the contraction and then the addition of an O is a uniquely Australian way of... <laughs> <laughs> codifying name it's yeah it really sort of it's quite grating when you're overseas and you hear it though you're like oh, oh god yeah. stop it please yeah absolutely <laughs> um and in terms of what would people not know about you oh, you've sort of gone into it's funny how we define ourselves by what we do and there's so mm. much that you could talk about um you know you and what defines you what, what's some of those things that people don't know about you that you're happy to share oh geez um that's a really really deep bucket from which to draw james um (laughs) well people don't know i think the the people who are close to me know but the people who aren't perhaps don't i've never had a conscious plan for my career i've i've been fortunate to meet really smart people and had the nows to work hard enough to create good opportunity but i think anyone who looks at my linkedin profile there's a few non sequiturs there I think the the thing that most people don't know is I'm really 100% driven by curiosity. If, if something piques my interest, I'll, I'll go at it. If I get the chance to create something from nothing in any form, I'll go at it. I guess one thing that most people don't know, when I was putting myself through university, my creative outlet was alcohol. Let me unpack that before everyone starts to build bias around that. I was a cocktail bartender. And I got pretty good at it. I won bartender of cocktail bartender of the year back in the late 90s. And once again, for me, that was just another, I guess, way to take raw ingredients and create something from nothing. The, yeah, the upside, I'd to, obviously. I'd love to Is talk there, everyone? about that point. Because okay. I did a stint whilst I was going through college uh, as first a glassy at a place called the Sydney Saloon Bar. My friend uh-huh. Michael, Michael worked there and he got me a gig there. And I started out as a glassy. And um, I worked with a, you know, a, a group, a team, a cohort of bar attendants who were also studying visual communications and whatnot. And it was probably one of the most creative environments I've, environments I've been in. There was a certain vibe and atmosphere, whether it be behind the bar or in the kitchen or on, out on the floor. There was this real energy that I really loved. I almost got to a point where I was thinking... I could really stay with hospitality because I'm getting this creative satisfaction here. The great thing about working in a really, really busy environment where you have, you know, 100, 200, 400 people screaming at you all night to serve them, um, you know, you've got a dance floor at the time, the people who ran or who own the security company that ran our front door uh, were the Hells Angels. So, you know, we had all <laughs> manner of complexity um, in that place this was covering before. all aspects of society <laughs> yeah exactly but i think what it does is it, it, it teaches you how to act in stressful situations it teaches you how to diffuse stressful situations it te- teaches you how to negotiate how to understand what people are really after how to talk to completely different people about completely different things but still get to the core of what they're asking for it teaches you negotiation it teaches you care and hard work and pivoting and thinking on your feet i mean it's a you know i'd recommend it to to anyone i'm not sure what the industry is like like now but certainly no. back then you throw a wide-eyed kid like i was into that mm. environment and they come out with a whole bunch of skills oh, that you can apply to anything i think i learned my work ethic i'm not saying i'm the most hard of working people but i think i work bloody hard and have done you know when you're starting work at seven p.m. and you're finishing at 4 a.m. and you're on your feet the whole time you're mm. covered in booze cigarette smoke <laughs> puke yep. and you get home and <laughs> i mean it just you know puts things into perspective doesn't it? it really does and having that empathy being able to relate to a broad church of people with mm. different agendas yeah in terms of um other things people might not know i i, I want to preempt you you climb for <laughs> quite well and i'm very envious of you 
your definition quite well and mine are extremely different in, in terms of rock climbing anyway. Um, my wife got sick of me sitting on the couch on weekends. Um, I used to cycle quite a lot. Um, I had an accident and I got a little bit gun shy after having been hit by a car and so my wife just on a whim bought me a set of climbing shoes remembering that when I was young I used to do a fair bit of outdoor rock climbing but life and family and kids and everything else work had gotten in in the way of that and so I guess firstly to, to justify her purchase I thought I'll go check out one of these new bouldering gyms never really been into bouldering before I'd always really focused on outdoor and I fell in love with it and it was I guess a reawakening so now for me it's it's my meditation Obviously mm. not at the moment. The gyms are closed and I'm I'm really, really missing that. For me, it's having mm. a huge psychological and physiological impact, not being able yeah, to climb. As it is for many people, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but it's, it's a really strong collaborative community. Once again, it's a creative endeavour. It's, it's problem solving on the move. Mm. You're looking at a wall, you're looking at a set of holds, and you are, in essence, trying to solve the problem of how do I get from the bottom to the top as efficiently as possible. Um, it's a metaphor for any sort of problem, isn't it? You've got an objective. Mm. There's a strategic approach towards that objective. And Correct. then there's the actual execution that you have to implement with Absolutely. efficiency to be able to reach and that it's objective. Qu- and it's quite agile as well in that, you know, it's, it's iterative. You might have a strategy, you might test that strategy, you might fail halfway up. So you have to mm. rethink that strategy. Rethink. You have to pivot and try fail something fast. else. Literally, you fall. <laughs> Literally fail fast. <laughs> and gravity is an unforgiving mistress. <laughs> I did a bit of, um, well, I was in Rover Scouts as a kid and I was enrolled in the Duke of Edinburgh initiative, which I think is a fantastic initiative for our young young folks out there. Part of that was doing a lot of these productive physical pursuits and one such pursuit was rock climbing and abseiling and so on. And I found it incredibly rewarding you know, I overcame my fears. I learnt a thing or two about knots and physics, <laughs> yep. and uh, learned how to, learnt how to support people through balleting and and whatnot, and being there and being present, not just on the rock face, but when you're at the base and you're you're watching out for your your, your peers as they scale or come down the rock face. We climbed the the middle of the Three Sisters in Sydney, Australia's Blue Mountains and signed our name at the top, which I thought at the time one of my biggest achievements. I wrote something ridiculously stupid because at the time I was a Costa to Zoo fan. <laughs> it's something like, go Costa, or sort of like this profound moment. And I just fanboyed out on my favourite box. <laughs> anyway. There's um, no shame in that. There's no shame in that. <laughs> in terms of the biggest influences in your life, who would you say would be the people or... What are some of the places or events you feel may have shaped who you are today? I'm going to give you two answers. One relates to, I guess, where I am professionally. The other one relates to where I am personally. One of my closest, dearest friends who I grew up with, known for 30-odd years, perhaps more, passed away last year, unfortunately. But one of the greatest gifts that she gave to me, besides her friendship, was an introduction to her her father when I was still quite young and uh, he'll be upset with me that I mentioned his name but um, his name's Jonathan Stone there Jonathan I said it Um, and I've been pestering him for the last 15 years to allow me to record his life stories he's been a mentor to me for as long as I can remember and he's been a massive influence in the way that I see the world the way that I see opportunity the way that I treat the people around me the sorts of things that I expect from from human beings in general. He's had a phenomenal life. He's he still beat me at chess. He's ninety three years old. No sign of slowing down as he approaches a ton. But just to give you an overview of the sort of person that that he is, he was media advisor to Pope John Paul II. He interviewed. John F. Kennedy and the Oval Office. He was arrested the day before he met JFK. He was late to the meeting because he was still making bail. He worked for Gough Whitlam and I'm doing the the quote mark thing with my fingers now, (laughs) unspecified capacity. Um, uh, He had a fantastic job where he was paid by a massive Chinese steel company to sit in a chair at the head of the table at board meetings and not say anything but just shake his head or nod when he was given a signal as the wise old man in the room. His breadth of experience 
I think, in life, James, is not by way of bragging, but by way of exposing me to to stories and events in history and opportunities and the incredible power of being a raconteur and being able to spin a narrative and a story around something and make it incredibly engaging is something that I use and I draw on every day, whether I'm talking to my kids, whether I'm talking to C-suite with a client, whether I'm having a chat with a mate. I mean, it's... it's, Being able to communicate in a purposeful, authentic and clear manner is quite a quite a gift mm. and i think it's something you can work on we can all work on throughout our lives i think it's it's really we have so many ideas you know and so many ideas are shared but the ones that survive are ones that are visceral and people can latch onto and and form and shape themselves and i think there's a real art to being able to create those memory mm. structures absolutely the other example i'm going to give you is not, it's not quite the same as jonathan but a, a very renowned graphic designer, when I was first starting out, took pity on me, a guy called Barry Tucker. He started his career with another designer, Ian Kidd. And Tucker Kidd Design um, is responsible for such iconic pieces of design as the Grange label for Penfolds, the Coopers, uh, the Coopers beer labels. Yeah, they worked with a guy at the time, a guy called Whit Morrow, who was a packaging designer who I met. Um, Whit was an incredible craftsman. He did everything um, with China graph and gouache. All his lettering was, mm-hmm. was done by God, hand. Remember gouache? Yeah. Remember gouache? <laughs> I remember. Oh, I remember. Yeah. Um, he had the old French curves and gouache were my life yeah. for a long time. I'm sure it was for you. <laughs> a real, real craftsman. I mean, literally mm. created things with his hands. Mm. Um, but Barry gave me a job as an intern, and I remember you know, I was still wet behind the ears, and I hadn't even been to design school at that point, and he... He gave me a task of designing a label for an Uzo brand called Pericles that they had as a client at the time. And I remember thinking, this, this can't be that hard. I was working with Kelsey, who was his senior designer at the time. She took me under her wing and I came up with a whole bunch of concepts and then I had to go in and pitch to, to Barry. And this was the first time I'd ever pitched a creative idea to mm. anyone. Barry's a was he's passed away, but he was a very imposing figure. He was a large man, beard, um, really gruff, chain smoked, <laughs> loved his beer. And I remember I can walking picture him in. now. I can see the guy, <laughs> <laughs> walrus in a white shirt. Um, <laughs> and I remember walking in and being full of excitement, full of energy, and thinking, mm-hmm. "This is great! I'm going to present these ideas." And I put them down on the table, and he looked down at the first one, and he picked the page up. And he threw it off the table to his left. And then he looked at the second one. He picked it up and he said, what's that? And I said, it's, it's meant to be a Pegasus. And he said, why the fuck would you put a Pegasus on a label? And then he threw that aside. And then he picked up the third <laughs> one and it was Roman columns or something like that. And he said, oh, this one's even more shit than the last. Seriously, what are you doing here? And he said, go back, do it again. And I was devastated. <laughs> I put my heart and soul onto the page mm. and I thought, at least I'm going to get some, some feedback. Con- and I went back constructed, like, give me something to work on. Yeah. I went back to Kelsey and she, um, she said, so how did it go with Barry? And I told her and she said, wow, he took pity on you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, was being, that was him being, Barry being nice. Yeah. Oh, and I, uh, what, what do you mean he took pity on me? Anyway, she... She helped me rework concepts and I went back into pitch a second time and my hands were trembling and I put the things in front of him and I, I wanted to second guess it and I wanted to say to him, look, you know, I can still, you know, rework it. This isn't my, my final thing. And Kelsey had counseled me to definitely not do that, to just put it on the desk, keep your mouth shut, see what he says. And he didn't hate two of them. He picked out one element and one of them and said, that's actually pretty good, but it doesn't work in this layout. And so I, I had this sense that what he actually did in his way, which was terribly confronting for a first-timer, but what he'd done is he'd forced me to take a really, really hard look. You can't phone this in, mate. You can't just do some scribbles and think it's great. You have to be a really, really hard critic of the work that you're putting up before Mm. it gets to me. Mm. You have to give me nothing to call out as not good enough. Mm. 
Right. And he could see that I'd phoned it in the first time, that I'd just gone, yeah, this will do, here's some Greek imagery, blah, 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 we're all done. And that, that taught me a lot. Um, I didn't spend much more time with Barry, um, not because of the way that he was, but because I decided to throw myself into design school and actually learn the techniques that I needed because I realised I didn't have the skills. But he's, he's always embedded that with me and I've, I've taken that approach when I've been fortunate enough to be responsible for young creatives or to help young creatives, mm. certainly with a completely different manner to Barry, but to help them focus on the process and the internal process before you get to the page. Yeah, you and I have done that uh, together, uh, not so much recently, but in 2015 we were both tutors and mentors to a, a group of two groups of students at a ward school. And that was a really interesting process. You know, we had a couple of really good groups, I think. Michael Watts went on to be mm-hmm. award school top 10 for Australia. Um, I think Willie Maitland and um, Xander Willamont. Yep. I think they're going great guns at the moment. And uh, the rest of the team did quite well. It's only uh, because only I used to work at Cleminger BBDO, and I know um, Willie and Xander are there now. So, mm. uh, you know, I, I get all the updates and whatnot on who's doing what, where, and so on. But, um, yeah, Michael Watts, I'm not sure what he's doing. I think he landed a gig in Melbourne or somewhere. But, um, Michael, if you're out there, mate, (laughs) ping us a message. Yeah. Let us know how you're going. In terms of what you're doing now, what's uh, keeping you busy these days? Where are you? What's happening? Um, You're at Isobar, right? I'm at Isobar now, yeah. Um, What are you working on? Geez, what am I Can you not working on at <laughs> what the moment? Not working yeah, on? <laughs> what, and what do you do? Like, let's go into your work. Let's talk more. Let's get down to business, baby. Okay, so let's get down to business. So I'm responsible in Sydney and Canberra offices for our strategic design and business design offering. I'll um, unpack what they are um, in a second. But I think it's it's really, really important to say that I spent a little bit of time in the wilderness from agency life. Um, intentionally, like setting up the service design um, agency for Capgemini was was not traditional creative agency by any means. Working in the consulting space, um, from there I went into a um, fintech startup, um, which in itself was an incredible learning experience. I I'd, I'd highly recommend to anyone who enjoys having to strategically pivot five times a day, deal with regulatory change at the drop of a hat, uh, work ridiculously long hours um, to give it a shot. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Constant flux. It's part, it of, part of it, right? I mean, part of the excitement being being in and around people who are pivoting constantly, re, redesigning their business models, you know, um, yeah. putting themselves out there, taking these risks. I mean, it's not for everyone. I would have kept going. Um, I really would have. I think the the fatigue with um, a young family, I've got three children, um, and the, the hours uh, that this role demanded, the orders of magnitude that we were working in, to give you a sense without giving it away, I'd gone from working on pieces of business uh, in creative industry that were... Um, perhaps $15 million for the entire account client over the space of a year to building a fintech that was looking at the first fund being around $135 million, you know, fund. So there's there's a lot of stress that comes along mm. with if you're building something that is going to be managing that magnitude of funds, every single detail has to be absolutely Perfect. I think that said, when I came out the other side of that and my job there was done, I wasn't screaming to get back into agency life. I think Mm. I had this perception or this memory of it being really long hours, really thankless work. I think one of my early creative directors, a guy called Lynn Punchin, who was one of the founding members of KWP down in Adelaide, the gentleman, absolute gentleman, told me early, uh, early on that, being a creative is like coming to work every day to have your heart broken. And it really is, isn't it? I can empathize <laughs> with that, that's for sure. Yeah. Especially you put so much spirit and love and, and time and it is emotional, mm. you know, and um, it is. You, you can't help but take it personally sometimes, you know, and that, that's draining. Exactly. So I had, I had some reluctance in going back to agency life, but I had a conversation with someone uh, in leadership at Isobar here in Sydney, and then I had a conversation with 
couple of the senior people in Melbourne kind of kicked around this idea of what this role could potentially look like. It wasn't something they were a seat they were looking to fill. We were co-creating what the role could potentially be. So I think the reason that I pushed the button and came on board with Isobar, which is part of the Dentsu Aegis uh, network, which everyone will know because it's been in the press quite a lot over the last 12 months with restructuring mm. and downsizing and all those sorts of things that uh, snakes and ladders of media yeah, well, industry. It's, it's a common narrative. Exactly, so. exactly, James. And I think the, the, the differentiating thing for me with, with ISPAR was it didn't feel like an agency. It felt like, and it still does today, um, nine, ten months, however long we are down the track, it still does today, especially more so now having been through what we've all just been through, what we're going through, um, like a collection of really, really smart, really, really passionate people who are all pulling on the same rope and just want to make cool shit and mm-hmm. want to be want to be excellent to each other. I mean, every business has their, their corporate values and we all pump them out on every presentation that we spit out, you know, to prospective clients. Um, Isobar does that too. The difference is we're measured on them. Hmm. We're rewarded on them. We're championed for demonstrating those values. We're held to account when we don't. Um, It's very, very much a mission-led organisation. The CEO is one of us. He's not the ruler. Um, He's in the trenches with everybody. And I think, yeah, I think the way that the organisation has dealt with the sudden and immense change that we are all experiencing um, has been a fantastic demonstration of that. The, the people and have the come first. And why, why you need to get to the heart of your your values and your purpose as an organisation or even an, an individual. It sounds like you have met a, a collection of people that have helped you define what your purpose is. You know, And as entities, businesses can do the same. And the way you respond as a business to change... We'll always come back to your 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 keel, you know, your your unrelenting focus on your purpose and your values, because you know you don't. They're, they're things you don't compromise on. Exactly, you know, they they are your values, and that's what give you gives you that north star. Mm. Um, I think I, I find a lot of the time organisations really have to create the values because they have or purpose because. They flounder and they search for this purpose to be able to give them some sort of guidance, whereas other companies form this purpose naturally, and it could be a byproduct of the right people in the right place at the right time, and this purpose literally is a reflection of truth that is um, embodied in the group of people there are at that time. Um, Mm. I won't speak to the particular agency, but I worked in an agency once that, not twice, actually, the first time around, I absolutely loved the place and it was the right people, the right time. There was just a vibe and atmosphere. I went back a second time and it was completely different and um, I don't know whether it was because the purpose shifted or it was because of the people that created that those value structures and that purpose the first time around were no longer there. So, yeah, how do you, I guess, how do you ensure that those values... Uh, ingrained in everything you do so that regardless of who comes in they start living and breathing breathing it and it's really really important we could spend the whole (laughs) episode on that alone because i think it's a really really interesting topic i I feel it every day in this organization that we run everything in agile we've restructured the entire agency to work in squads in the past i've worked in organizations agencies businesses that are very much like you know, the cobbler's child in that we're fantastic at telling our clients what to do, but we don't actually adopt those methodologies or practices ourselves. How are the squads working with you? Did it take a little while for people to get used to the ways of working and the various rituals? It has. It's taken a while, but it's it's a moving feast. And I think the, um, the power of that is we're in a position as a collective, as an agency, to talk to clients from a position of knowledge that we've actually done this we're not recommending that you do it and then we're doing something else entirely. Mm. We've done this. We've proven the model out. We understand what the challenges are. Mm. We understand how we pivot for that. And then that helps us mm. 
better inform our clients because we're speaking from a position of deep understanding of all the complexities that go along with any change management. It's interesting. The squad model itself almost reflects the natural, you know, there's an agency way and the way is, you know, there's a brief that comes in and you'll pair off with either your permanent partner or you might pair off with a range of specialists in different chapters. That is pretty much what the squad model is about, right? You have this squad dedicated to a specific body of work Mm. and you've got representatives from each of the chapters and you, you bring them all together to work on a particular campaign. At my work, when we were implementing our agile model, it just reminded me of almost a formalization, for lack of a better word, of those organic processes that happen in creative organizations. And I really liked it. I really embraced it and highly recommend highly recommend people try and implement that, that agile structure themselves where they mm. can. Do you it use Kanban boards and, and any sort of project management? I go, I do. love a good Kanban board. I <laughs> <laughs> love a good Kanban. Um, we do, we do. It, uh, I think the, the thing I try and stay focused on, which kind of brings us back to my role as strategic designer, is... There is, no, there is no methodology. It's not like we roll out a deck and say, okay, these are the steps you need to follow. If you do A, B, and C, then D will happen. It's, it's very much more about systems thinking and mm. here are, here's a universe of tools and methodologies and approaches and delivery models and whatever else. Let's really, really understand what is the core business challenge and which one of these is appropriate to help solve that challenge for the client um, mm. or which one is appropriate now, which one might be appropriate in the near future, and then beyond that, how do we look at evolving the model? Mm-hmm. One of the clients that I can talk about that unfortunately is is feeling a lot of uh, a lot of pain right now with with COVID as it relates to work we did with them around implementing um, agile methodologies and human centered design capability. Uh, is Qantas and they're obviously a massive organisation they have a huge in-house digital department which in essence runs like uh, an internal digital agency very talented people turn out fantastic products but like any organisation to to move a significant number of people from an established way of working to an emerging way of working is complex, difficult, time consuming Um, there's going to be pain along the way when you're driven by Velocity, productivity, output, ROI—it's—it's um, it's hard to make incremental change that impacts any of those things because each one mm-hmm. of those things has an owner within the business who doesn't really want to have their KPI impacted in the short term, so that mm. there might be some gain in the some unquantified gain from their perspective mm-hmm. in the long term. So it is very much a change management capability uplift transformation consulting mm. behavioral economics psychology piece you know it's oh, sure. and that's what, why what is the, the role again sorry just you said it was a systems designer is it? strategic designer strategic yeah. designer yeah so, so i think you, you're covering everything from um the traditional aspects of design right through to designing organizational structures and ways of working and everything else is that correct correct yeah correct so it's, it's everything from ways of working op models governance models Jeez, it could be anything, culture practices, transformation consulting, service design at scale. It's, it's very, very much a very large toolbox. It's just the role of a strategic designer is knowing which tools to use, when and how to help mm-hmm. a client solve the challenges that they're solving. And I think it's very, very well suited to someone like me who's incredibly curious, to people who are extremely... Um, Organized, which is not necessarily me at all, to people who are system thinkers or model thinkers. I mean, we all create mental models because they're heuristics that help us get through our day without cognitive overload every day. Mm. Um, You know, Mm. if we had to think about everything that we did in intimate detail every day, we'd be paralyzed. That's right. Um, And I think if you can understand that as a communicator, the better. You mm. know, if we realize that, you know, people don't have the time to unpack or untangle the nonsense you're throwing at them and just respect that then um, we can communicate to people far more effectively. So how does a traditional strategist differ to a design strategist? I think traditionally um, strategists have been challenge-specific. So you'll have a 
um, a marketing strategist who will solve marketing strategy. You'll have a business strategist who will solve business strategy. Um, you have a digital strategist who will focus purely on digital touch points. With a with a view beyond that, obviously, but the the core of the focus. Mm. Imagine Sun Tzu said he'd be rolling in his grave, you know, when he was writing the Art of War. Someone said to him, "You know, your strategy will be broken into um, occupational themes later on because it's different when <laughs> it's in digital. It's different when it's in <laughs> anyway." Go on. Exactly. Yeah, and I think at the core, what strategic design um, looks to do is to apply strategic thinking and strategic methodologies a lot more broadly and a lot more holistically. That said, I wouldn't stand myself up against any senior marketing strategist in our organisation. They're eminently more qualified to do what they do than I will ever be. I guess the breadth of my strategic understanding is a lot greater than the individual depth along each one of those but it's understanding each one well enough to know what do I need to implement and understanding the skills that I implement often at an absolute granular level but pulling in the right people to solve the the right problems you know we have Mm. we have agile coaches we have human-centered design specialists marketing strategists obviously developers designers UI front-end back-end they're all eminently qualified to do what they do and they do it extremely well every day my role is not to pretend to be any good at that stuff Mm. my role is to sit with an organization that for instance says we've been we've been working this way for x amount of years um we understand that that's not sustainable but we're not sure how to create new value streams going forward we're not sure what is the right initiative to implement and when we're not sure what the impacts will be to our workforce or our customers or our culture, that's when they'll sit down with someone like me and have those conversations around, all right, well, let's get some clarity first on what is our current operating model, what are our current pain points, what are our current opportunities, Mm -hmm. and then let's co-design what a future might look like and then figure out what are the steps that we need to implement, what are the impacts they will have, um, and how do we mitigate those impacts or how do we prioritize the initiatives that we're going to look at Mm. going forward depending on the amount of effort as opposed to the amount of value that they'll deliver it sounds like quite a extensive and long process and not one that you would normally be used to where you've got a deadline and you've got a deliverable and at the end of it you've got something tangible to show whether it be an ad or a piece of design or content or how do you get around that and how do you find that sense of satisfaction and achievement, which is so important to mm. – we, we need some sort of validation, don't we, after <laughs> we've invested so much time and emotion into these projects. Yeah. What does that look like when the project's completed? That's, that's a really, really good question. I think for me, anyway, is implementation. And the, the frustration that I had with my three seconds in traditional consulting land um, was that the, the typical engagement – was a large body of work, a lot of research, a lot of head hours, delivering a 300-page strategic recommendation and an invoice, and then moving on to the next client. One of the critical factors for me in deciding to to take the role that I have with ISPAR is that that's not the end of the process. Um, The end of the process is actually implementing that strategy, is helping that client navigate the the one, three, five-year horizon what does that look like how do we take the first step if we've got 15 strategic recommendations well okay how do we implement the first one how do we do that with the client how do we embed with the client and hold their hand as they go along that process because in doing so we're going to learn where our theory runs up against practice and we're going to need to be there to make uh, course corrections i guess Mm. on that strategy you know, we, we might make an assumption around an established behaviour and we might have historical data that shows us that if we implement something like this, we can expect ABC. Um, but the, the reality is once we're in a particular client's organisation, that might be entirely different. So I think the, that satisfaction is now a much longer timeline that I have to wait for that satisfaction. Um, but that said, there are very, very regular value drops when you get to understand a client 
and you build a working relationship with them. That's that's an incredible, you know, return for for me and for for the people that I work with. I assume that a lot of what you do still relies on an incredible amount of research, and part of that is getting inspiration or you know maintaining that level of um, creative curiosity. How do you how do you beat the inevitable creative block? Um, climbing, obviously, um, is a is a huge process for me because it means that I can only focus on one thing, and it quietens the millions of voices going on in my head in my workday. Um, other process processes for me for alleviating creative block. I think it's about shifting focus entirely. I don't think creative block is something that you can push through. Um, I think for me anyway, I think for me it's about how do I solve something else? How do I remind myself that I'm capable of solving problems when I'm frustrated with a problem I can't solve as opposed to just keep trying to solve it, keep trying to solve it. Mm-hmm. Um, I look to something else. Wall, hoping yeah. that something will change or jump into your head that will give you exactly. inspiration. So the circumstances won't change in that moment. So I'll change the circumstances and remind myself that I'm capable of um, creating something. Um, and that might be you know, a plate of pasta. Uh, it might be painting. It might be you know, going for a run. It might be something else entirely. Um, but for me, it's about really shifting my focus to something else, um, believing that eventually the creative block will pass. Jonathan, um, my mentor, the 93-year-old, said to me on more than one occasion, um, when you're frustrated at what's coming next, just look at where you've been. And what he's meant by that is there have been times where I've said to him, mate, I I don't know how I'm going to solve this. Like, I'm seriously up against it here. I've got a deadline nothing is coming to mind. I feel out of my depth. I don't have the skills to actually unpick it. Um, I'm feeling incredibly frustrated and unstable right now um, Mm. when it comes to being able to deliver on what's expected. Um, And he said to me, well, have you been in this situation before? Yeah, plenty of times. Did you solve those things? Yeah, I guess so. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. So... What are the hell are you worried about? Like, <laughs> why are you focusing on what you can't do when <laughs> just look backwards it's and so look true. at all the evidence it's of so times true. that you've done it before? Yeah. yeah. But we beat ourselves up, don't we? We really do. Time and time again, you beat yourself up because of this self-doubt. Are, are there any go-to books or or <laughs> films? I know you're a bit of a film buff and yeah. you might be somewhat of a... Uh, You've made a few um, yourself, haven't you? I think one that you co-wrote or wrote yourself, yeah. picked up some gongs internationally. We were very lucky. I worked with an incredibly talented um, photographer who's turned director, who I met um, in our time at uh, Leo Burnett, actually, James, um, a guy called Christian Mashenko, um, and he was kind enough to invite me to write a short film script, which um, we we produced, we shot in New York a few years back and um, look, we entered it in a whole bunch of film festivals, short film festivals and uh, a few people seemed to like it, didn't think it completely sucked, so that was good Um, we're working on another one at the moment which is a a documentary, so first one was was fiction, this one's very firmly non-fiction. What's the name of that film so our listeners can check it out? Uh, Longing L-O-N-G-I-N-G Are there any books books or films that you love? That have inspired um, you, that you go to yeah. for creative block? Yeah, there is. There's, there's one book in particular that I always go back to, and it's, I know Song Zhu's Art of War is probably the most often quoted book in, in this regard. But for me, it's a book called The Book of Five Rings by Miyamoto Musashi. Musashi, yeah. 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 And I, the thing that that I always come back to with that book is... Physically, you cannot be attacked by more than 10 people at once. There is, there's not enough <laughs> space that around your brilliant. body. I love that. So if I you can that. defeat 10, you can theoretically defeat a million. Mm. Right? So, so for me, it's all about chunking. It's all about you look at the things that you can affect 
and you affect those things first. You don't look at the size of the problem. You look at the bit that you can defend yourself against or you can attack, and you do that bit first. Yeah, so that's, that's a book that I always Miyamoto, come back to. Miyamoto Musashi, I think he became, talking about purpose, he found his purpose quite early after... Um, securing his place as the best swordsman that has ever lived in mm-hmm. Japan. And he got to such a point that he became this humanitarian and he was received challenges from all over Japan and he would simply beat them off with a stick so he didn't mm. have to kill them. I mean, it's, it's, it's also an, uh, a great lesson in appropriate use of power. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And I think self-moderation's a really, really important thing, especially when, if you're a senior practitioner in the industry and you're responsible for juniors, your responsibility is to, is to nurture them and help them and guide them um, in the most caring and collaborative way that you can. I think the days of beating people with a stick and expecting them to get better are well and truly over, or at least I hope they are. Um, <laughs> Damn it. It's the, it's um, the, for me, it's always the carrot or the stick, mate. I mean, you know. Yeah, exactly. It's quite I mean, I, No, I'm joking. One thing that I've found um, incredibly gratifying in the last year, and this is a, a colleague of yours as, as well, James, Nikki Bryson, Mm. Um, has hey, started this fantastic. I, I'm, oh. I'm, she, she'll be on this podcast. Mark my words. She's amazing. Yeah. I, I, well, I volunteered my time to uh, be part of her trenches, trenches yes. um, initiative where I mentor some. Um, have have um, you have you undertaken up, that up yet? Coming, mate. That is one of the most gratifying things that I've done. I've been lucky enough to have a few um, mentees through that program now, and being being able to. Um, help people overcome challenges or answer questions or give guidance on an individual one-to-one level Hmm. um, with all the learnings that people like you and I um, have picked up in our our time in creative industry is incredibly gratifying to be able to to be able to give back um, and help you know, help the the next generation define the way that they want to approach the industry. Yeah, and that's a good point. Define the way they want. I think they have to want the advice as well. I, I'm more than happy to to share it where I can. I think the mentee has to be very receptive to receiving that advice because it can be quite confronting. I know speaking to people about things that are concerning you and asking questions that you may feel stupid asking is always quite confronting. But I think. It, the reason we do that is because we ourselves wish we had someone to be able to, you know, pull us up and through the industry because it is quite a daunting and quite an aggressive um, career to try and carve out um, a place in. What's your favourite piece of work that you've created or you wish you had? Oh, there are four. Oh, jeez, that's a huge question. Um, I won't even pretend to put one of mine up in there, but there are two pieces of work that I love for what they did, for the very fact that they just reintroduced play and reintroduced pure creativity at a time when digital was starting to emerge, ROI was back on the table from a really, really process-driven perspective. The first Bravia ad, Mm. you know... (laughs) Yeah, that I mean, was just, it, it was such a pure creative idea, you know, yeah. it was so lovely. It was, it was a moment of joy and, and that's all it needed to be. It didn't need to talk to me about the features or the price or the, the inputs or the ports or, you know, any of that sort of stuff. Positioning an idea doesn't have to be a literal rattling off of all the proof points and that's what they could have done with the Bravia screen and high definition, better colours, brighter brights and so on and rattle off all the tech behind it. It was just multicolored balls, right? And absolutely, that's it. How brilliant! That's it. How brilliant! And you get it. Your world's full of color. We get it. You know, yeah. it's it's elegant. It's restrained. It it's not masturbatory creativity. Along the same vein, for me, for for two reasons. One, I'm not ashamed to say that I've never been a fan of Phil Collins, but Cadbury Gorilla mm. for me was so arresting at the time. It was so different. That moment of joy you feel yeah. when you. Break off a block of chocolate, milk chocolate. I like. Yep. I prefer dark chocolate, but milk chocolate mm. also gives you and releases those hormones, the endorphins, and just mm. capturing that with that, you know, it's just absolutely brilliant. It was fan- it was 
outstanding. It really was. It was. But I think the the other reason that, that I found that so satisfying is that team sold that piece of work in. <laughs> you know, look <laughs> at the client, look at the category, look at the way that they'd advertised in the past. Mm. You know, that, that for me was an entire creative organisation coming together with a client who was willing to take what at the time must have been perceived as a massive risk to create something that ended up being iconic piece of communication. So for me, it was, it worked on many levels. Yep, it was joy. I felt creative. I felt lightened by it. I was surprised. It was wonderfully engaging. I could watch it time and time again and still love it. Mm. Um, But on the other side, working in the industry at the time, I knew what must have come to pass to get that live to get it produced to release the budget yeah (laughs) Yeah. huge absolutely yeah 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 how 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 it remained this robust idea and wasn't whittled down to this poorly malnourished thing that was struggling to survive you know which is another thing that i think a lot of creatives why a lot of creatives find it so exhausting because you've got to fight for those ideas just to keep them alive, don't you? But what do you think of what brands and organisations are doing at the moment to respond to COVID? I think what distillers are doing is fantastic um, in pivoting to create hand sanitizer. Yeah, that's brilliant. And LVMH I think being, is doing yeah, the same thing, aren't they? Being able to keep their people employed by just changing the product, uh, I think is fantastic. Dyson, obviously, with the respirators, once again, you know, a great pivot. I'm working with our global team at the moment to to help our global client base do more of that sort of thing. What is it that people really need? And are we in a position as an organisation to help them? And if we are, then we're investing in our brand. Yeah. Some of the responses are just a little tone deaf. And I think if you're not going to market now with the message of empathy mm. and saying as, a, as an entity, how can we help? If you don't That's know right. how. And garnering the responses from your audiences and then providing, coming back to them with some something useful they can apply, then, you know, you're best not going out there at all. You know, the yeah. brand health experts will say, don't go quiet. But if you haven't got anything good to say, you're just spitting in the soup as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> you're best to stay out of people's way whilst the rest of us yeah. get in, muck in and try and help, you know. I would normally ask people to um, get up on their soapbox and talk about some things that are grinding their gears but you know i really don't want to add to the negativity that is currently <laughs> facing us at the moment can i yeah. offer something in place of that getty museums at the moment they've opened a contributive twitter challenge where people are recreating iconic works of art with whatever they have lying around the house it might be the scream recreated with towels a couple of books some pencils, you know, a pair of shoes, whatever it is, um, which I think is a wonderful thing on a couple of levels. It's a beautifully creative thing to do when you sat in a house with an ever-diminishing number of things to keep yourself engaged. It engages you with what their core purpose is, obviously, which is getting, getting the world to, to fall in love with, engage with and understand art. It opens a conversation. In many cases, it's really funny. It's always positive. Uh, I think that's an example of something that has very, very little cost but huge potential impact. That's fantastic, and that's what we need right now. Speaking yeah. of positivity, what we'd like to end on is a little bite of wisdom. If you could sum up your philosophy or uh, your creative approach in a sentence or a meme or even a set of commandments, what would it be? If it was a T-shirt, Speaking what would it say on the T-shirt? It would be, be a long T-shirt. So I think the T-shirt would say something like, back yourself. If there's something that you want to do, believe that you can do it and just go for it. And surround yourself with people who will help you get there or who will encourage you to achieve it. Don't put any effort into negativity or, or people that stand in your way. If it's something you want to do, just go do it. And you'll, you'll find a way to do it. You'll connect with people who also want to do it. I think the other thing... And I've heard uh, Professor Scott Galloway from NYU Stern talk about this a lot, where he says, when you're young, don't, don't follow your passion. Follow what you're good at. I think there's a middle ground to that, and that's certainly how my career stumbled to the point that it is now. And that's been to follow my curiosity, but upskill as hard and as fast as you can to support that. Mm. You know, if, it's, if it's a passion, great, get... Get to be as good as you can be at exploring that passion. And then if that passion changes, fine. But invest 100%. Back yourself. Go for it. Work your ass off to get the skills you need to give it a good crack. Because if you don't, you're wandering. Having a really, really clear idea of 
what lights you up is great, but making sure that you've got the skills to capitalise on it is just as important. That's fantastic advice, Marquis. I think the listeners will find that really useful. I think you've offered some amazing tips, insights, and you've been very honest and open with your experience and um, what you've currently been up to. Mate, I absolutely love your work. I'd love to chat to you again. Stay safe. Wash your bloody hands. <laughs> Look after that beautiful family of yours. And yeah, let's let's speak soon, mate. Will do. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you, James. Thanks, Marky. Right, chat again, All mate. All the best, man. If you'd like to find out more about me or the B-Side podcast, please visit jamesbside.com. That's one word, jamesbside.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at B-Side Podcast. If you have any suggestions or feedback on the show, please email me at hello at jamesbside.com. And don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. The B-Side with James Barrow is produced by me, and I really hope it's helped unlock your creative potential. Thanks for listening, and until next episode, cheers. Cheers.